It's autumn. The signs of summer drawing to a close are everywhere. There's a slight chill in the air. I'm standing now in my very favourite place, in Lacken, in the heart of the Glencree Valley. I'm about three kilometres outside Enniskerry, up a winding road that leads from the Powerscourt estate on up towards the old barracks at Glencree. We've had more than six months of Covid restrictions, during which time I think many of us turn towards nature for solace and for hope. Just stepping out into nature, standing amongst trees, hearing the river, feeling the ground, no matter the weather, no matter what's going on, it never fails to land you and it's always there to draw on. I'm very lucky because I live here in the Glencree Valley, home of the Shaking Bog, a festival and podcast where art and nature meet. My name is Catherine Noons, and I'm the director of the Shaking Bog. A nature enthusiast, but definitely no expert, just a keen curiosity and a lover of all things cultural. This is the first episode of a seasonal podcast, and we'll be taking a gentle meander through the countryside together, having conversations with writers, artists, and others engaged in the understanding and appreciation of the natural world. Hopefully small insights too, through readings and reflections that help to shine a light on our most intimate connections with nature, and maybe a few small surprises. I always think of autumn as being a somewhat melancholy time, as the summer closes, as the leaves start turning and we head towards the quiet of winter. But of course, like everything in life, there are two sides to it, because it's also a season of new beginnings. A time of wind, movement and fresh energy. A time of industry and transformation. A time, too, of great beauty. All of this reflected in the sounds, the light, and the very feel of the season. To reflect some more on autumn, we are delighted to have a special guest, the poet Sean Hewitt, who recently published an extraordinary collection of poetry entitled Tongues of Fire. The autumn has always been my favourite season. I was born in October, and the arrival of cold mornings, gloom, white mist, and the trees turned crisp and fiery, always brings with it a sense of comfort, a sort of paradoxical warmth. The seasons, in that way, I think, are intimately nostalgic. Their coming reminds us of their past comings, and for me there could never be enough autumns in the world. Each year I anxiously wait for the leaves to turn their colour, and whether it's age or anxiety or a perceptible shift in the climate, each year that time seems to come later, the season getting warmer, 
so that sometimes it barely seems to exist but for a grey, wet drizzle marking the passage between summer and the more austere winter months. A good autumn can sometimes feel like an elusive thing, a sort of rare gift. When I lived in Liverpool, the back gate of my garden opened up onto an old Victorian park, and some days opening that gate would reveal a quiet, mist-filled world as the fog lifted from the fields and the pond and settled between the trees. In this poem, from my collection Tongs of Fire, I walk out into that park in the autumn. The poem is called In Prince's Park. The orb weavers have been working overnight. Slings of web linking the rowan leaves, a silk circuit tree in the fog. It is almost as though I have woken up here, have walked in my sleep through the last white day of October to meet someone, but, arriving, have forgotten who. And still the wood is filling itself with itself, the leaves falling down to the other leaves, and every so often, at intervals, a woodpecker, in repeated short bursts, shakes hold of the quiet, its echo ricocheting, knocking at each tree for the unsuspecting bright splint of life, asking who is home, who is home, and then snatching it out. I'm walking now towards the river, watching the swallows as they prepare for their annual migration. We've had some swallows nesting in the corner of the doorway of our kitchen this year. What a privilege it's been to watch the intricate nest building and the devoted nesting at such close quarters and then to anticipate the birth of the baby birds and to one day find the broken eggshells under the nest, listening out for the faintest sounds as evidence of their safe arrival. I've keenly observed every step of the process and feel very invested in their welfare. Now they are preparing for their great migration and only returning to their nest at nightfall. I will miss them when they go. It's hard to imagine that these tiny creatures born only a few weeks back will be heading all the way to Africa, barely out of their nest. All wings and heartbeat, as the writer Melissa Harrison says. And yet knowing somehow exactly where they're going and knowing exactly where they're coming back to. If only we could be so sure. Our local farmers are very industrious in the month of September and I took the short journey across the unseen county boundary into the neighbouring Dublin mountains to meet the wonderful Selina Guinness at Tebraden, the home that formed the backdrop to her illuminating memoir, The Crocodile by the Door. Selina is a writer, lecturer and sheep farmer and she spoke about both farming and nature writing. To be honest, I was a small bit daunted, not just because of Selina's formidable mind, 
but also because I really know very little about sheep farming. So we're standing underneath a Spanish chestnut with the lambs in the background. And this Spanish chestnut, we reckon, we don't know how old it is, we don't know what size that girth is, but the girth could be about 15 feet, about 15 feet or so. Mm -hmm. And I kind of tend to think of this tree as dating from the 18th century. But it's very much at the end of its life, the bark has decayed around the base due to a fungal disease and it's been dying over many years. But of course, trees as they die become fantastic habitats. And just up here on this very thick branch, if you stretch where the bark has all come away so the wood is exposed, it looks very much like rock rather than wood. If you follow that right up, you'll see that there is a branch sticking out and there's a perfect mm. oval hole at the bottom of that branch. And that is the nest of a, I'm going to get this wrong now, a great spotted woodpecker, um, which weren't of course native to Ireland. They weren't here until about seven, eight years ago. They came in from Britain. And every spring, the woodpecker arrives and stays for about two or three weeks and then flies on probably up towards Glencree. But we're going to cross over now into a field that we call the 19 acres. It's called the 19 acres because that's its old Irish acreage. It is in fact 33 statute acres. But you're going to see it at its nicest point because we had it mown. Uh, we had uh, it baled for silage, well actually for haylage, about five weeks ago now. So the grass is perfectly fresh on it. It's never looked like this before. So smooth and green. Looking out over a vast, slightly uphill expanse, that's why I'm out of breath, um, overlooking Dublin. So you can see from here the docks, but you can see across down to Ireland's Eye, the Pigeon House, and also Lamb Bay. We have swallows swooping over the grass. You know, they're, they're settling up on the telegraph wires, they're getting ready to go. You know, we've got very mannerly clouds today. I can hear in the distance, I can hear the rush of the M50. Um, and I can, you know, I know what these trees are that I'm looking at, like that little line of hawthorns just there. That shows you where this field was subdivided in the 19th century. That shows you where the old field boundary is. So I can read this landscape. Let me talk to you about the lambs that are here uh, because we're coming into the autumn now and our lambs should be uh, finished for uh, the mart. We would uh, finish about 40 to 45 male lambs every year which would be sold for meat. Um, what we farm is, uh, it's a very hybrid flock but uh, we at the moment have quite a Suffolk um, lamb. Then the shearing happens in midsummer, and tell me about the wool. Yeah, so here's a story about wool. Um, my neighbour, Richard Ryan, who lives up over in Kilmashogue, is a really good sheep farmer. He would have bought one of his fields with the proceeds of the wool check in the late 60s. 
in the past few years, about last 10 years, what we get for the wool just about covers the cost of the shearing. Okay? Our shearer is a man called George Graham who comes up from Leash. George himself is pretty extraordinary as a, as a, as a person. He uh, runs a helpline effectively for farmers. Not formally, but basically farmers ring him to talk uh, because George has been quite public about his own mental health issues in the past. He can read the temperament of a yard at a glance and he comes into the kitchen afterwards uh, for sandwiches, um, usually with his helper, sometimes from New Zealand, not this year, Irish helper, and um, he listens. And it's an amazing service, so he's doing more than shearing the sheep. He gets paid just under two euros per yo, which is hardly anything. And this year we took our wool, which was uh, 250 kilos, down to be sold in August, and we got 20 cent a kilo. So we got a check, I think, of about 56 or 60 euros. So we made a loss of 200 quid on our wool this year. Is it a shortage of demand? So cleaning wool is an incredibly dirty business. Um, and the chemicals that they use aren't licensed by the European Union. So it is sold through England, uh, through Yorkshire. There's a, a wool kind of brokers in Yorkshire. Most of Irish wool goes through that brokerage as far as I gather. And it gets sold either to China or to the Ukraine where it gets washed and prepared, usually then either for wool insulation or carpets although it's actually too coarse quite often to be considered for carpets. Sometimes it gets kind of um, mulched and basically used as a form of kind of soil improver. But it is re-imported then as wool insulation. So if you think you're doing something really environmentally friendly in insulating your house in sheep's wool, you're insulating your house with a product that has gone halfway around the globe and has been chemically treated to clean it to an enormous extent, and then it is re-imported and sold to you as an environmentally friendly product. Tending. A fast breath lamb is brought indoors. Illness incandesces in a cardboard box. An infrared lamp, a ruby glass blown womb, lit the shock slows, waits, the head lifts. And if it is enough or not enough to strengthen any one thing, it is life, both given and fought for. It is love, both granite and meadow. That's the acclaimed writer Vanny Capaldeo reading Tending. Vanny, who is from Trinidad, like myself, proves the theory of six degrees of separation, as coincidentally she is also a close friend of Selina's. Vanny Capaldeo was at Oxford when I was there, um, but we didn't really know each other very well. But we struck up a correspondence, and I enjoyed that correspondence, and so I invited her over to Dublin to stay. So she came here... Uh, she's stayed with us about three or four times and it's always just 
um, a complete honour to have her here and she comes into our house and she stays and she says things in this kitchen that are extraordinary like all the women in my family can smell snakes um, which is a gift that you know from an Irish perspective is extraordinary um, but perhaps is less extraordinary from a Trinidadian perspective. One of the things about sheep farming is that you don't farm for the beasts, you farm for the people. You farm for the people you meet. Um, and there's enormous dignity and pathos in sheep farming in Ireland because, I mean, actually I've just come back from the Barra Peninsula and I've seen sheep that, you know, must have two legs longer on one side of their body than the others because they are grazing the sharpest of inclines in the Caja Mountains. And I actually thought to myself, you know, really, people should pay depending on where their sheep are produced because farming sheep in that landscape is so hard and the profits are nothing. So why do you continue to sheep farm? Because we can. It's what Chagas would call a hobby farm. We do it because it feels like the ethical way to live here. Uh, we have fallen into the pattern of the year. So soon we have to get the yews ready to go to the rams. And somehow every year, our year turns, the seasons turn based on what these unprofitable creatures need. I think it's about, it's a, it's a very basic form of attachment that um, there's no attachment without work. And this feels like the most honest work that is available in this space at this time. So that's why we do it. There's a neighbor, um, John Murphy over in Bonabrino. I remember him saying to me early when we started, he said, um, there's no animal like it for dying, <laughs> was his first statement about sheep. <laughs> there's no other, he said, they're either on four legs <laughs> or they've got their four legs in the air. Like there's no in between. And um, it's funny, I always kind of think of that, there's no animal like it. He said, that's right, it was a great phrase. The sheep's only ambition is to die, was what he said to me. I thought this is the most gloomy <laughs> prognosis for my farming future. But over the years, in that kind of, there is that kind of grim humour and that sort of, sort of sense, it's, it's a Bacchettian humour. It's a kind of form of fatalism, but it's warm. It's not cynical, it's not ironic, it's not knowing, it's not pretentious, it's just what it is. And I'm very, very grateful to have those people in my life. I wouldn't have them in my life if I wasn't farming sheep and if I wasn't selling sheep. Selena, do you think that um, nature writing romanticises farming? The easy answer is a straightforward yes. And I think that that is potentially quite problematic uh, because I think the tendency is to regard the landscape and nature as wild rather than as cultivated. It's absolutely fine to write about the beauty of the elder bush, but understand why it's there. I love nature writing, and that, but it is also elegiac because people think you know, uh, Helen MacDonald, who wrote H's for Hawk, who's a fantastic writer, wonderful book, H's for Hawk. And she had an essay out last week in The Guardian um, about how nature writing is always inhabited by this sense of loss. It's written in this, in this elegiac mode. And I would counter that and say, yes, it's in an elegiac mode, unless we actually 
properly face into production and acknowledge how cultivation and production happen and that we don't fetishize nature. I mean, the best people to look after Irish land are the farmers. It's not a monoculture in Ireland. We, we're so lucky we have this tapestry of family farms. You know, that's what Ireland is. It's all these individual plots with all of their variety of habitats. We don't have the monoculture and the arable lands of France. So, you know, we should really be a bit more tolerant and forgiving and understanding of how hard people work to look after the land that they've got and to farm that land. Selena, what would be your, um, your hopes for the future then, and just as you stand and consider, consider your flock and your land? I try not to think about the future all that much. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I think the great contentment in life is actually not to think about the future, just to keep going. Um, I need to finish a novel. Uh, that's my main concern at the moment. Um, and there are all sorts of things that we could do with the farm to improve it and to make it better. But I also know that, you know, we are probably the last farm next to the M50. We're the closest to Dublin. Um, and that the next generation will want to build on this field. Um, so, you know, that's going to be a decision that has to be taken by another generation. I think, you know, I've nailed my colours to the mast in that regard, um, so they'll have to make those decisions for themselves. Welcome. Early lambs, born some hours ago, curls canaled, crimson ridged, too new to agitate. Won't stick heads through the well-adapted fence or wait on treats, but stay. Succeed in standing. Funny, fuzzy, valuable wedges. Cave painting. Hand-smoothed treasures. A fine sound. The ewes bellowing. A hybrid flock. Individual faces. Strength in the legs, warmth in the shed. Here I am, having just opened and closed the gate to an area of native woodland planting. I think they're trying to keep the deer out so the trees have a chance to thrive. It's a feast of biodiversity, and I hope to come back here with one of the friends of the Shaking Bog, who can tell us some more about the change of season here, the insects and the life that it supports. It's thick with sound and lushness, and an ever-changing cycle of life. I can see some blackberries growing there, the skeletons of the foxgloves, the bracken starting to curl in on itself, and the saplings of the trees starting to stand tall amidst the undergrowth. All of this set against the beyondness of hills and old native woodland. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm so lucky to have this on my doorstep. You'd never think that civilization was so nearby when you stand in the middle of this abundant, diverse and dense landscape. 
The great writer of the natural world, Nan Shepherd, captures all this so much better than I can. Here is an autumnal passage from her influential book, The Living Mountain, read by Brenda McSweeney. Birch trees are least beautiful when fully clothed. Exquisite when the opening leaves just fleck them with points of green flame, or the thinning leaves turn them to a golden lace. They are loveliest of all when naked. In a low sun, the spun silk floss of their twigs seems to be created out of light. Without transfiguration, they are seen to be purple when the sap is rising a purple so glowing that I have caught sight of a birchwood on a hillside and for one incredulous moment thought the heather was in bloom. Among drifts of these purple glowing birches an occasional rowan looks dead. Its naked boughs are a smooth white grey, almost ghastly as the winter light runs over them. The rowan's moment is in October, when even the warmth of its clustering berries is surpassed by the blood-red brilliance of its leaves. This is the blessed quickenwood that has power against the spirits of evil. It grows here and there among birches and firs, as a rule singly, and sometimes higher than either, a solitary bush by the rivulet in a ravine. October is the coloured month here, far more brilliant than June, blazing more sharply than August. From the gold of the birches and bracken on the low slopes, the colour spurts upwards through all the creeping and inconspicuous growths that live among the heather roots. Mosses that are lush green or oak brown or scarlet, and the buried plants blueberry, cranberry, crowberry, and the rest. Blueberry leaves are a flaming crimson, and they are loveliest of all in the Rothy Mercus forest, where the fir trees were felled in the 1914 war. And round and out of each stump, blueberry grows in upright sprigs, so that in October, a multitude of pointed flames seems to burn upwards all over the moor. Let us now take a moment to stop and listen. What we're listening to is the sound of the wind through the birch, alder, oak and ash trees of an old alluvial woodland on the shores of the Garibogue River in County Sligo. Quilture nature is restoring this rare and precious wet woodland habitat so that it can regenerate itself naturally. One thing I hope to have as a regular feature in every podcast is a conversation between an artist and a scientist or nature expert. For this episode, I had the privilege last week of listening in on a conversation between botanist and pollination expert, Professor Jane Stout, and artist Gronja Cuff, 
who creates the most beautifully vivid etchings of flowers. We met up in Grogne's studio in Glasnamullen in the Wicklow Mountains. They began by considering some etchings of tulips. And every structure on the flower has evolved in response to a relationship with a pollinator. Yeah. Um, and so that's all, all that all that flower is doing something. The, the, the petals are signalling, the scent is signalling, the the, the, the um, markings on the petals and then the important bit is that bit that's inside yeah. where, where the reproductive structures are yeah. so it's, it's lovely to see into the flower yeah. to see the, you know, the, the guts yeah. of the flower and I think that's um, I think that's kind of uh, you know that's the, the, all those curves and the mm-hmm. petals and the volume this sort of three dimensional yeah aspect and the wonderful texture and the light that you have yeah. on the petal there and I mean it's the whole texture of a petal and the light within a petal and mm. what the colour does right out to the edge of mm-hmm. the petal and like taking the, the entire petal from the very centre mm-hmm. going the whole way out like the intensity in that there's yeah. an etching plate there and that's a, a bigger version of Meter that square the, that's version. The, the etching from that plate. Yeah, that's yeah. the plate. That's the copper plate that the etching is done from, and it's a one plate etching, and so yeah. it, 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 the color was, you know, that's that's yeah. how the edition is printed. So Beautiful. it's just the intensity mm. once you get right into the middle. Yeah, and you've you've captured the fact that the the petals aren't a, c- a consistent color. You don't just get one yeah. color. Yeah. Um, and and that the the colors change depending on the angle that you're looking at yeah. the flower and the, the sunlight and yeah. and um and as we were chatting the other day and and you know i was saying about how insects see flowers in a different way to us yeah um, and they see different colors so they 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 see the uv part of the spectrum so they can actually see markings on petals that we can't see but i suppose that as well as the colour and the kind of, um, you know, any anatomical thing that I have in the images of the flowers that I do is I uh, another sort of series of elements that I kind of try and evolve in, it in my work as a sort of um, anything to do around the, the whole feeling of calmness. Mm. And I, I find it very hard to make work when I'm not feeling quite calm mm-hmm. yeah quite calm I don't have to be super calm but um sort of that that thing of balance yeah. and in in each image and but also the fragileness and the thing of capturing a moment yeah. and yeah. just you know being able to draw something which is going to just you know it's not going to be there forever it's ephemeral and just yeah. kind of um and that that, that calmness that comes through in in your work you know sitting in here surrounded by these just stunning stunning uh, oh, sitting here with so pieces. many of them and i know well i just don't know where to look it's just you know but, but <laughs> yeah. that um that that fragility as well comes yeah. through which is yeah really wonderful yeah I think the pea, the sweet pea family as well is wonderful for that. Just yeah, seeing the, the actual pods, the pods of when yeah. the sweet pea goes into, when they've made, they've made their pods and yeah. they just shatter open. and They, they, they dry and they pop, don't they? Yeah. The, the, yeah. yeah. And the seeds, because the seeds are quite big and heavy and yeah. sometimes the pod popping open can 
expel them you know kind of force yeah. them away from the yeah. parent plant yeah um, but it's amazing talking of that family again there's some incredible members of that family that are actually uh, vines in the tropics yeah. and they produce great big seed pods with huge seeds that then yeah. drop down into the rivers and are yeah. dispersed then by water um, yeah rather than being dispersed by animals or wind you know yeah. so there's yeah. lots of different uh, mechanisms for for dispersal of the seeds as well I know there is a kind of a thing where um you can hear pods clicking yes. open on a hot day yeah and I think what I'm thinking of is gorse bushes does that happen in gorse? Yeah, it might do. That's um, the same family. Bloom. Same is family. Gorse the yeah. same family. Yeah, wow, they look at the flowers, the same shape. Yeah. But you can hear them like in a, kind yeah. of on a hot day in Ireland. You can actually yeah. hear these little clicks and pops. And yeah, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Because yeah. you always think of plants as as sedentary and not really doing anything. And, yeah. and, and yet there's so much going on all the time. They're making noises. They're attracting animals. They're dispersing. Yeah. They're, you know, they're doing stuff. They're just not doing it in the same way that animals do, so... Yeah. So when you see the big bumblebees covered in pollen... Oh, and, yeah. Yeah, the wonderful, brilliant pollen. Yeah, I saw a yeah. huge one, like, about an inch and a half long the yeah. other day. And but that's, yeah, we're coming towards the end of the season now and they're, they're starting to produce new queens um, that will then hibernate over winter and come out okay. again in the spring so, so that could be a queen that could be a new queen yeah oh. yeah yeah they're really because it was big significantly ones. an awful lot bigger to other bumblebees yeah yeah, yeah. so so she'd, she'd then find a little uh, hole in the ground and, yeah. and go into diapers basically just she'll have already mated uh, she'll go and, and hibernate and then the rest of her colony the old queen all the workers all the males they'll all die out and she'll overwinter in, in the hole, come out in spring, visit with nothing flowers. to eat. She's, that's what she needs to do first. She needs to get some food, so she goes and finds some flowers, um, collects nectar to give her sugar, energy, yeah. collects the pollen that gives her protein to maturate her ovaries, yeah. uh, and then she'll she'll find a good place to nest, wow. and she'll collect nectar and pollen and form a little pollen ball and lay her eggs, and wow. it all starts over again. Yeah. It's turned into a beautiful, glistening autumnal morning here. After some rain, I'm now climbing my way up from the river, just as a little blue sky is appearing. I'm happy for my wet walk. It seems to bring a pungency to the smells and the feel of the forest and the valley. I can hear my feet squeaking on the wet grass underfoot. And I look very much forward to accompanying you again in our next Shaking Bog podcast, celebrating the winter season, when everything will look very different. To finish, a brief reflection on the times we're living through from the great writer, historian and lover of trees, Thomas Pakenham. As summer gave way to autumn, he spoke to us in his garden at Tullynally Castle, County Westmeath. We're now in a forest of Madeira plants. These are Madeira plants, tender and they, uh, as this one is actually called Pride of Madeira, the, the, this blue thing. I do miss travelling and I have been, for the first time in my life, 
uh, uh, stuck here for, since March without really... I did go outside once or twice. I love to go to food shops. Um, I haven't been to Dublin since March. I haven't, let alone Britain, England. And um, so I missed my traveling life. But on the other hand, I, um, well, I was stationary. The year was traveling, the year was moving on. And I was able to watch as I went down the garden path, that succession of nature, one plant after another, the, the wildflowers. Uh, and, uh, and although they were perfectly ordinary, judged by, uh, or by, I mean, every year we would have a succession. I'd never seen this. I'd never watched this cavalcade of, of wildflowers starting with um, the early spring ones, of course, snowdrops start off and then move down through daffodils. Um, uh, uh, and now we've got right at the end of, coming to the end of the year, lilies. And lilies are very artificial, but wonderful. Not wildflowers, very much um, um, artificial flowers. But So I've, I've, I've had nature taking me traveling really I, I've but it's been strange experience I must have been much really bad for people locked up in box of flats unable to get out I've been incredibly privileged really privilege that's the word Maybe one doesn't know why one falls in love. Maybe it's a mystery, do you think? Um, uh, emotions are very uh, peculiar. But I, I think the thing about trees is that they don't talk back. They're uh, excellent listeners. And uh, I think anybody who spends a long time with a tree feels the better for it. The Shaking Bog is delighted to have presented this podcast in collaboration with Quilcher Nature and Mermaid Art Centre. The podcast was mixed by Steve McGrath, with thanks to Ray Harmon for his music and Kieran Hogan for his kind assistance. Until the next time, stay safe and be well.